Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each week we invite our listeners to take 10 and get the latest economic insights from our in-house economics team. And good morning once again to our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter. And good morning, Craig. Matthew, inflation continues to be the hot topic this week. It's been in all the press right across the world. We've now got commentators appearing to be split into two camps regarding the likelihood of an inflation outbreak. We discussed inflation, of course, only a, rec- only a couple of weeks ago on a recent podcast. Have there been any, any updates or conclusions you've seen in the data since our podcast just two weeks ago? Craig, the key data point that's been released recently is the personal consumption ex- expenditure deflated, a bit of a mouthful there, Craig, or the PC deflated for short. The reason why that's important is because that's actually the inflation measure that the uh, Fed target targets. And there wasn't a lot of new information in it, Craig, just like the CPI print that we discussed a couple of weeks ago, the PCE measure showed a really sharp lift in annual inflation in April, actually to 3.6% from 2.3% in March. Core inflation, which uh, excludes volatile items such as food and energy, also lifted to 3.1% from uh, a 1.8% read in March. So that core inflation, which is really the focus of the Fed, has moved significantly above that Fed's long-run target, which is 2%, and is uh, just at the upper end of the range of inflation that we think the Fed would tolerate on an, on an ongoing basis, uh, which we think is around about 3%. Okay, so from a core point of view, we're just above, but is this spike still reflecting these one-off factors, or are you now seeing some signs in the data, Matthew, there's more persistent causes for a rise in inflation? Well, Craig, at the moment, the data that's been released are more consistent, I would say, with one-off factors as causes rather than um, there being evidence of persistence. The PC data confirmed the trends in the CPI that we've already discussed a couple of weeks ago, as you said, Craig. And those things are such as things like concentration of price rises in a small number of what I consider outlier categories that are either restoring price prices to more normal levels as the economy opens, and there we've talked about things like air transport costs, or are experiencing uh, price pressure due to supply chain bottlenecks, which we expect to be unwound going forward, excluding those outliers, both on the upside and downside for that matter. Uh, it gives us, a, 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 you know, if we exclude those, we'll get a better picture of the breadth of inflation. And according to measures like that, such as the Dallas Fed's trim mean inflation measure, uh, inflation lifted to a modest, more modest 1.8% in April, uh, up from 1.7% in March. Yeah, really interesting. So, Matthew, maybe we can just try and bring it together because at the start I mentioned that we've got these two distinguished views on inflation starting to form and you've got some really prominent market participants such as Host Plus's Sam Cecilia and PIMCO's Dan Iverson suggesting that inflation will remain subdued into the long term due to technology but also an aging population. On the other side you've got some really big US fund managers such as Larry Fink and Jeremy Grantham who have recently come out talking about an epic inflation spike due to fiscal spending and particularly Biden's new packages. So how would such experienced and informed participants take such a different view? Well, Craig, I think we probably need to separate the rhetoric from the reality as well. Look. Oh, okay. Here we go. (laughs) So to just establish a couple of realities, the overwhelming majority of economists, of market commentators, the Federal Reserve and financial markets themselves think that the secular trend in inflation is going up. Also, the overwhelming majority of economists and of market participants and the Fed and the market uh, financial markets themselves 
had been anticipating a spike in inflation over the period of April through to June this year, largely due to one-off factors such as base effects and the economy reopening. The question, Craig, I think is not that we expect inflation to go up, that, that is accepted. Rather, how high will the spike be and for how long will inflation remain elevated? And by that I mean, for how long will core inflation remain above 2.5%. Now, to answer that, it's it's good to separate what could be those causes. The forces that could drive sustained high inflation are one, entrenched supply chain disruptions, two, a sharp tightening of the labour market, and three, whether macro policy, fiscal and monetary policy will result in an uncontrolled increase in inflation. So let's let's tackle those three three issues. Firstly, supply chain disruptions have certainly occurred and they're well documented. We've talked about them, Craig. Yep. But to, but to date, it would seem that most, such as the computer chip shortages and the spike in international shipping costs, will be reflect are uh, they're more reflective, Craig, of the the lag in the ability of producers to crank up supply at the pace at which demand's increasing as the economy reopens. Now, you know, after that lag, you know, you'll get uh, supply back up to meet demand, we expect. That should resolve over time, in other words. Next point, labour markets. Labour markets are improving, but significant slack still remains, Craig. In the US, for example, there's 8 million more workers unemployed currently compared to pre-COVID levels and 10 million less workers employed if you add in the secular increase in employment that would have occurred over the last year in the absence of of um, COVID. So there's still a long way before we get tightness in the labour market. Deflationary aspect there, Matthew. That's right. The third threat from policy, I think, is is the real threat. Now, Biden has just unveiled a $6 trillion budget spanning the next decade. It's a lot of money, Craig. Six trillion. It's a lot of, and a lot of it's you know about six hundred billion, seven hundred billions in the first year or two. But not all of that will get through Congress. And even if it does, over the next decade at least, according to the Biden plan, the budget's fully funded, largely by company tax hikes and by increases on taxes to the wealthy. Now that brings into question what what that'll do to the economy, of course. But if it is fully funded in that way, it isn't hasn't got the same inflationary impulse as if it weren't. And finally, on the Fed, Jerome Powell has been successful in establishing the independence of the Fed from the government, both during the Trump administration and uh, the Biden administration. Therefore, if inflation appears to be coming become entrenched, I fully expect the Fed to respond by raising rates and cooling any excess demand and consequently cooling inflation. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic foresight shaping your investment outlook. Matthew, we covered the potential impact economically, of course, of the latest Melbourne lockdown in last week's podcast. This week, of course, the Melbourne lockdown has been extended and is now threatening to run up the East Coast into New South Wales. Last week, you predicted the lockdown would cost between $500 million and $1 billion. And Matthew, I think you got it right on the money there. But do you expect this now to exponentially rise going forward, given the extension of the lockdowns? Yeah, when we spoke last week, of course, uh, Craig, we were anticipating a one week lockdown. So that's now extended to two weeks. So you can double that that number. So we'll probably see uh, somewhere. Nice between, and linear. <laughs> yeah, nice and linear, not exponential at this point. Uh, so somewhere between one and two billion. Now, where will we lie? 
between those two numbers is interesting and it's pleasing to see that the federal government recognising the danger posed by the lockdown and offering up to $500 per week for workers that lose employment or uh, lose hours work. And, and that, Craig, will soften the blow. And so I think it'll limit the damage to somewhere around the $1.5 billion mark for the two weeks that uh, Melbourne's under lockdown. Now, of course, all of that is predicated on the idea that the lockdown's limited to two weeks in Melbourne. And as you alluded to, the outbreak doesn't spread to New South Wales. If that occurs, of course, we're into that exponential uh, increase that you that you mentioned. One of the interesting um, outcomes from this latest lockdown, Matthew, is the response from the state seems to be evolving. You know, when you look back at the previous outbreaks, we were locking down the entire state. It was very much a state versus state scenario. But more recently, we're now starting to see, in the case of the Victorian government, locking down the city, not the state. Uh, So do you see this as the way forward, given the current virus and how impactful it is? Oh, absolutely, Craig. And, and, you know, the improvements in testing and contact tracing since last year mean that uh, we can pick up the spread of the disease much quicker than we could last year. And that enables us to do the more uh, targeted lockdown uh, that we're seeing in uh, Victoria at the moment. However, um, on the flip side of that, Craig, and the jury is still out, and that's why we have to wait and see what happens in New South Wales, why that's so important. We're dealing now with a much more virulent variant of the disease. We have to wait and see if our improved testing and contact tracing can keep pace with this, uh, the spread of this new variant, of course. Well, let's get into that, Matthew, because one of the reasons that the Melbournians can leave home is one of the five reasons that is is during this lockdown is to get vaccinated. Uh, it's been well reported that Australia is losing the vaccination race. The government is now pointing to some momentum that they're building in vaccinations, but could more or can more be done? Absolutely, Craig. You're right. We're losing the vax race to herd immunity, which is where we need to get to. To date, we've only managed to give around 4.5 million vaccine doses of the 40 million that are required to fully vaccinate the adult population. And at that, our current rate of vaccination, it won't be until uh, next June, uh, June next year, I should say, at the earliest, before we inoculate 80% of the population, which is the threshold for herd immunity. Now, that's a really poor outcome compared to developed countries where the US should achieve herd immunity by September this year and the UK by August. So we do need to step up that rate of vaccination. Yeah, and no, look, from my own personal experience, it's not that easy booking yourself in and finding a date. There, uh, There's none in the foreseeable future for me anyway. And just on that last comment, Matthew, around the US and the UK, there does seem to be a little bit of an East versus West divide being created by COVID and the vaccination rates. We talked last week about how many parts of Asia are going back into lockdown due to outbreaks, and that, of course, includes Australia, whereas in the US, they're freeing up travel, etc. So are we sort of seeing a scenario now where we might see an economic impact between and a divide between the East versus West over the coming year? Absolutely, Craig. So the interesting thing is last year was all about the ability to um, avoid lockdowns to cope with uh, suppressing the disease the disease. And there, East Asia, our region, including Australia, was the winner. You know, we were the ones that were able to uh, best control COVID. We avoided uh, sustained lockdowns. As a consequence, our our region's economy was the star performer of the global economy. And the laggards were the US and, and Europe. This year, it's all about how quickly you can achieve herd immunity and roll out the vaccines. And there, the, the tables are completely turned around, you know, flipped. We're the laggards and uh, 
you know, North America and Europe are, are the leaders. Uh, we're, as a region, uh, slow in, um, in the vaccine rollout. Uh, we're also slow in uh, vaccine coverage, and that's really showing up to be a problem given the, uh, the new variants, which, which are far more virulent and so much harder to to eradicate out of uh, community transmission compared to last year. So we are really now uh, in the back seat rather than in the front seat in that race. What does it mean for the economy? I think it does mean potentially weaker growth. Why? Because those low vaccination rates combined with stronger variants of COVID that are now prevalent means that until we get to herd immunity, we'll have to accept three things that are going to be um, negative for our, our economies. One is community outbreaks will continue to result in targeted lockdowns. Second, we'll need to provide targeted support to businesses and households in times of lockdowns, meaning that our fiscal situation will probably suffer. State border controls will have to remain in place to ensure that these localised outbreaks don't translate into a fully blown national outbreak. And finally, international borders will have to remain closed to limit the risk of leakage from quarantine facilities. All these things, Craig, are going to be a headwind to growth going forward for us. Yeah, look, one for our, our strategic asset allocation people. Thank you, Matt. Matthew, and will the much stronger variant of the COVID now circling see the federal government continue to dip their fingers into the fiscal wallet, or will the more agile regional lockdown process keep the economy moving forward? Could it impact any thoughts, of course, of a Morrison government early election? And inflation continues to attract significant attention across the world's financial press. And with this comes the inflation debate with clear camps setting up on either side. But does the debate simply boil down to which of the handful of driving forces will win the day? Technology versus fiscal spending. Is it this simple? We'd love to know which camp our listeners are falling into when it comes to inflation. Send us your views, qpod at qic.com to share your thoughts. I'm Craig Balanswaler for QPod. Thank you for listening and have a super weekend.